Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. What if John C. Calhoun had won the debate over the United States Constitution? What would that America look like today? I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. I talked about the sale I'm having starting today. So you want to get in on that sale. Make sure you're on the McClanahan Academy email list. You can do that by enrolling free of charge at McClanahan Academy. I'll also put the coupons over in my regular email list, but certainly you know about it in both places. So make sure you're enrolled at McClanahan Academy to get these, this deal because prices are going up. So these are the, this is the lowest you'll ever get any of these classes for again. So make sure you snag them while you can. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can also go to Spotify for podcasters. You can get in on the action there. You can give a donation. You can also uh, click on the Super Thanks button at YouTube. <clears throat> if you're watching on YouTube and you like it there, click on that Super Thanks button. That does throw a few pennies my way. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. That's how we grow the audience. Give it, Leave a comment on YouTube for the algorithm. This is how we get more eyes and ears on the show. And send me those show requests like this one. This is a listener-generated episode, so it's really cool to get those. I like these listener-generated episodes. And this actually stemmed from a conversation that a listener had with uh, a person that I've been on his show, Thaddeus Russell. I've been on his show a, a couple of times. And um, he, uh, he asked Russell this question, and Russell said, well, then ask me. And so it has to do with John C. Calhoun. And I found it to be a fascinating question because this game of historical inference is always fun. In fact, when I was an undergraduate, um, I had a professor in what was called a pro-seminar class where you actually learned how to do research and you learned how to be a historian. It was a very rigorous class. I don't even know if they offer this kind of class anymore uh, at, at the undergraduate level. In fact, um, most people dropped because it was so hard. But he had a project where we had to do historical inference, and it was you know, based on your knowledge of this particular event, what do you think if this hadn't have happened? And being an undergraduate, I really, gosh, I didn't know very much. And so I didn't do a good job with the, uh, with the project itself. But it's an interesting idea. And essentially, that's what this person is asking me. So let me read the question, and then I'll give the response in this particular podcast. The question is, if slavery is ended, occurred peacefully, how might America's constitutional republic look today had Calhoun's understanding of the Constitution survived his demise, all else being the same? This is a multi-part question. There's a lot of things to get into here. 
So one, you have to infer that slavery would have ended peacefully at some point. Uh, the other, the question is, do we have a constitutional republic or not? And then, what about Calhoun's understanding of the Constitution, and what would that make, what would America look like if that had won out? In other words, if Lincoln had not happened, <laughs> because we had, in some ways, Calhoun's understanding of the Constitution in the antebellum period. You have to go back, of course, to the Jeffersonian period, and that was certainly Calhoun's understanding of the Constitution. So let me address all three of these parts that I brought up in this particular question. The first part, of course, is would slavery have ended peacefully? And I think the answer to that is generally yes. Now, how long that would have taken is the real question. We know in the 1850s that there were Southerners who were making a lot of money on slavery, particularly in the sugar-producing areas of the South. In fact, the largest antebellum mansions were built in the 1850s in and around Louisiana because there was a lot of money in sugar. And you can see that trend continuing well until the 19th century and then to the 20th century with sugar refineries and other things. So sugar has become a staple of the American diet. And I think that would have happened anyways. And so you would have seen uh, a, a um, economic pushback against uh, the eradication of slavery based on how much money these people were making on sugar. Now, certainly they could have paid people to do this. And when you look at cane producing areas, even the world today, these people work for basically slave wages. I mean, they're, they're horrible, horrible working conditions. These people work very hard, dangerous conditions. Cutting sugar cane is a very dangerous process, not only because of you can cut yourself real easy, but also the wildlife and other things you have to deal with in these cane areas. But um, so you would have the economic situation. You know, slavery was profitable for some people. Um, there was always the argument that it wasn't. I think that people like Fogel and Engerman have shown conclusively that it was fairly profitable. I think that even Genovese and others would say that slavery was profitable. So you would have the economic pushback to uh, against ending the institution quickly, though I think machines would have made it much more feasible. But then Southerners were also looking to use slavery in different ways. I mean, this was something they had started addressing. How do you, how do you make slavery work, say, in an iron-producing region? Well, you had iron foundries in Richmond that were actually paying workers. I mean, so these were slave workers who were getting paid for overtime. So they were adapting the institution with wage work uh, coupled with slavery to make a, some, some kind of hybrid. I think you would have started seeing some of these things happening in the South. Um, the point of, of slavery at this point was to own the labor of the individual. And so you had a guaranteed labor supply, which is what, and, and of course you started having a welfare argument system pop up, right? This is the paternalistic side of it. Well, we take care of these people from cradle to grave, from the time they're born to the time they die. It doesn't matter if they can work or they can't work. They're still under our care. They get medical care. Uh, they get housing. They get clothes. They get food. It was another type of labor arrangement. And I think you would have seen some real arguments about this if slavery had existed beyond 1865 when it ends uh, in the United States. The last states, of course, being states like Delaware, New Jersey, and Kentucky, uh, where it existed all the way up until December of 1865 or in that, that range. So... Uh, I think you would have seen some type of, you know, some real substantial arguments in this uh, and slavery's demise. Though I do think that it could have ended peacefully. I think there could have been some proposal. I mean, look, Lincoln 
suggested a compensated emancipation program where slavery would have existed into the 1920s or close to 1920. There could have been something like that proposed. I would say slavery probably would have existed in some form uh, up, in, up until the 20th century at some point. Uh, if it had not ended in 1865. So one of the results of the war, of course, is that slavery does end. Uh, and that's always the, the good side of the war, right? Slavery ends ultimately and doesn't end at the conclusion of the war, but with the 13th Amendment. So slavery ends. But it could end peacefully. Um, people could have been paid. Uh, you could have had it die out because of, um, because of mechanization. You could have had it die out because of, of, of social uh, opposition to it. I mean, all kinds of things could have forced its demise. We'll never know because it ended the way it did. So that's, uh, that's something to, to think about. But that's the first part of the question. So slavery ends peacefully. Now, again, it could have taken in the 20th century. But if you take that off the table, right? So and the real issue, remember, in the 19th century was not slavery itself per se. I mean, there were people that were morally opposed to it. And there were people that were strongly in defense of it. But it was the quote-unquote extension of slavery into the territories, which, as Jefferson Davis and others pointed out, wasn't really extension. It was just removal from one place to another. You're not, you're not creating an area. You're, you're, not, you're not growing slavery in an area as it grows in another area. You're taking one slave from here and putting it here. And in fact, this was the diffusion policy that Thomas Jefferson had actually advocated to eliminate the institution. Well, if you spread it out, and you make it to where uh, there aren't large concentrations of it. And that would eventually eliminate the institution in all of these areas. Now, we could argue whether that would work or not. But this was Thomas Jefferson's idea. Diffusion would eventually, uh, would eventually wear it out. Uh, they also, of course, supported colonization. Uh, now, expatriation. We know Lincoln was working on that up until the near the end of his life. So coming up with some place to send uh, former slaves so that they could start over and not be in the environment that they were going to be in when the war was over. There was all kinds of things that were being discussed. So you could have had these other programs. I mean, Lincoln himself, again, would have allowed slavery to exist into the 1920s in his proposed constitutional amendments when he issued the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. If you don't believe me, and of course I've got the Reading Lincoln class at McClanahan Academy, I cover that where he goes over it in detail to Congress in December of 1862. This is not something I'm making up. It's historically, it's in the record, right? This is what he wanted to do. It's just that Congress never picked up his proposals for an amendment. So the first part, slavery ends peacefully. Okay. Uh, now, what is a constitutional republic? Well, that would be like France. Yes, we do have a written constitution, but we have a federal republic. That's an, You have to use the proper terminology. If you don't use the proper terminology, you open the door to a unitary state, which is what France has. It's one-size-fits-all, top-down government. This would be something that Calhoun was completely against. And he believed in a confederal republic or federal republic. He made this very, very clear throughout his life. So we have to get the terms right. A, a constitutional republic, if we're going to use that term, and I'm not, I'm not, I mean, a lot of people do this, so I'm trying to understand where we're coming with these terms. A constitutional republic would be like, again, France, the Third Republic or the Fifth Republic, you know, whatever, whatever republic they're on. Uh, it would be a unitary state based on a centralization of power. And, of course, that goes back in France to really the reign of Louis XIV. When you had very strong centralization in that, in that kingdom, 
And then, of course, later on, that helps create the nation-state of France. And eventually, you get French kings calling, the, calling themselves not the king of the king of France, but the king of the French. That would be Louis-Philippe. And so you have these very interesting, you know, um, semantic changes, right, taking place in France. How they use terms, what these terms mean. But you have a unitary state, the provinces in France, the parishes, all these different places, they really have no control over anything. All policy in France comes from the top down. It's a constitutional republic. It's just not a federal republic. See, in our system, we have a federal republic where everything is supposed to come from the bottom up. We have a central authority with limited powers, expressly delegated powers, enumerated, granted powers. And so if it's not in Article 1, Section 8, or it's not denied by Article 1, Section 10 to the states, it means that the general government cannot do it. So there are all kinds of things we could talk about this, but that's generally the important point. We have a central authority, a constitutional, that's designed to constrain the powers of Congress and constrain the powers of the federal government. You often hear people make this argument. We have a, we have a constitutional republic that limits the power of the central government. I think constraining them is better. It's a better term to constrain them. You can only do these things. Now, we know this is the case because we had people like James Wilson stand up in October of 1787. The ink had barely been dry on the document. And he says, look, here's the difference between the written constitution of the United States and the constitutions of the states, including the state he was standing in, the state of Pennsylvania. In the states, if it says... Uh, we can do anything we want as long as it says we can't do it in our Constitution. So the state government powers were limitless. As long as it didn't say you can't do it in the state Constitution, and if it, did, if it didn't say you can't do it in the U.S. Constitution, their powers were unlimited and undefined. Whereas in the central government, the new general government for the United States, if it didn't say you can do it, you can't do it. So only the, the general government only has the powers that are actually delegated or granted. I mean, that term granted means something. These are the powers being granted to the center and no other powers. Who's granting them? Well, the people of the states are granting these powers. And so the central government only has these powers. And I'm saying all this because this is exactly what John C. Calhoun would have said. Okay, and I'll get into the Calhounian position in a minute. So... We have a general government with only these powers. That's it. You can only do these things. You can only X, Y, Z, uh, A through Z in, in this Article 1, Section 8. And then you have the corresponding Article 1, Section 10, which took the same powers away from the states. They work, to, they work in conjunction. So, for example, and I go through this in my Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution. I also talk about it in my American Constitutions class at McClanahan Academy which you should get on sale right now because you'll never get it this cheap again. I also go over this in Originalist Papers. I cover this in all kinds of places, but in more detail than I'm doing here. But for example, let's say the general government has the power to coin money, which it does. The general government, as we talked about yesterday, can mint a platinum coin. You know who can't? Well, the states. It says it, right? Now, it says it can make gold and silver legal tender, but it doesn't have the power to coin money. But the general government does. So you look at the powers that are in Article 1, Section 8, and then you look at the powers that are in Article 1, Section 10 that are denied to the states, and they work back and forth. 
There's nothing in Article 1, Section 10 that's not covered in Article 1, Section 8. So those are the only things the states cannot do according to the U.S. Constitution. The only things they are denied in doing. That's it. They can do everything else. Whereas the general government cannot do anything unless it's in Article 1, Section 8. Now, you get the Hamiltonian position, which is why I have Alexander, screwed up, Alexander Hamilton screwed up America, excuse me. You get that Hamiltonian position, they start reading into the language. They start loosely constructing the Constitution. They start looking at the implied powers, implied being important. Well, it's implied. We could do this. I mean, you can read this into this somehow. That's the Hamiltonian position. By the way, it's also something John C. Calhoun brought up. So we have a federal republic, and what we've seen all throughout American history, this is where I'm teaching this new live class, which starts tonight if you'd gotten in on it, commentaries on the Constitution. One of the most important things we've seen throughout American history is this battle over the powers of the central government. It has been the most important debate in all of American history. It's about power and who has it and where is power located. We have not resolved this issue even in 2023 when the Constitution was ratified in 1788. It has not been resolved. We're at, what, 240 years on and we're still talking about it because of the problems of interpretation. This is something John C. Calhoun addressed as well throughout his life and even posthumously in his published uh, ruminations on what he thought needed to be done to address the powers of the general government and address uh, inequities in uh, the general government and other things like that, particularly with the states. So I've got a great class at McClanahan Academy reading John C. Calhoun. It's one of my best-selling classes. I go through some of the most important things you're ever going to need to know about Calhoun. But I'm going to give you uh, an abridged version, a cliff notes, so to speak, of what Calhoun thought and where he was coming from in this particular podcast. So I'm going to answer the question. But you need to get reading John C. Calhoun. And again, right now, with the discount I'm giving you, is the lowest price you will ever see it again. You're never going to get it this low again. So you want to hop over to McClanahan Academy and get these classes for a deal. You want to do that right now. And the coupon code is very easy. It's just June, right? Coupon code is June. So you want to use the coupon code June. You can take the, the, the percentage off the classes uh, that'll get you the lowest discount now. And that's what you want to do. You want to pick these classes up now because they're going to go up and you'll never get them this cheap again. So use the coupon code June while you're getting this June of 2023 to get that deal on those classes at McClanahan Academy. But, so let's get into Calhoun's thought here. So what was it? Well, Calhoun, first of all, which Calhoun are we talking about when we go over this particular issue? Are we looking at Calhoun, the concurrent majority Calhoun? Are we talking about Calhoun um, <clears throat> before? I mean, concurrent majority is one thing he always talked about, having some type of veto. Um, so I think if, if, first of all, most importantly, if Calhoun had gotten his way, there would have been some type of state veto over federal legislation. Now, in Calhoun's mind, one state could veto the entire thing and the legislation would not go into effect because one state 
rejected it. Now, there are places that this kind of works. I mean, people have actually gone out and studied John C. Calhoun and said, well, what happens if we had this kind of thing? What if we had a veto? Well, you see it sort of in Switzerland, right? The, the cantons can go out and veto different things if they don't think it's going to work for them. So Switzerland kind of has this, and Switzerland, Switzerland functions. I think if we're going to talk about Calhoun, though. You have to go back to the Jeffersonian position. Now, Calhoun actually supped with Jefferson. He, he met him when he was a young man, and Jefferson was an old man. But yet Calhoun spent some time uh, talking with Thomas Jefferson. Calhoun, though, was not well-liked by the old Republicans. There's a great book on that, Norman Rizdor, and I think it's over my left-hand shoulder over here. You might still be able to see it. Norman Rizdor, The Old Republicans. He talks about how Calhoun was not trusted by these people because he wasn't a purist. Calhoun, when he goes into Congress during the War of 1812 is a nationalist. I mean, Calhoun believes in a strong central government. He wants to fight the war against the British. He proposes the bonus bill, which uh, many people thought was unconstitutional because it it uh, uses the proceeds from chartering of the, of the Second Bank of the United States, which, again, the old Republicans thought was unconstitutional, but it does it in a way that spends money uh, and it has a tariff. I mean, there are things about that particular bill that don't sit very well with the old Republicans, with the old Jeffersonians who saw Calhoun as this kind of new breed of Jeffersonian, kind of like Henry Clay. I mean, look, Henry Clay never abandoned this stuff. Henry Clay is a Jeffersonian who believes in a quote-unquote national economic system that came about because of the War of 1812. Henry Clay, though, was uh, always always considered himself to be a Jeffersonian. But no one in the old Republicans trusted him because they thought he was dangerous for the original Federal Republic. So Calhoun has that same kind of reputation in the 18-teens. And he spent a lot of time, remember, Calhoun spent a tremendous amount of time in the executive department. Whether it was Secretary of State, Secretary of War, Vice President, he was there a lot. Now, you can say the vice president, of course, is president of the Senate, so he spent time in the Senate as well, and he helped you know, uh, reform the rules of the Senate. But more than anything, Calhoun spent a lot of time in the executive branch. He was in the House for a period. He's in the Senate for a period. And because he had these, these different perspectives on things, he was in the executive branch, he was also in the House and the Senate, I think this gave Calhoun... Um, uh, a great insight into how these things worked. So, Calhoun always thought that the states should have a great role in the federal government. Even when he was a nationalist, he wasn't necessarily against the powers of the states. And he thought that the Constitution throughout his entire life did limit the powers of the government. However, even if you look at his positive good speech, he made a very interesting statement during that speech. People miss it. He said, look, if the general government can pass an unconstitutional tariff which they have, if the general government can pass an unconstitutional bank or internal improvements, which they have, they can certainly abolish slavery. And if that's something that, that uh, we want to do, because we can do unconstitutional things, and if it's something that's going to be beneficial for the United States right now, if this is truly the case, why don't we abolish slavery today? Why don't we just take up a bill to abolish slavery in the United States, and we'll be done with it? But nobody wanted to do that. There were maybe a few 
But the general consensus in America in 1837 when he makes a statement is, well, we're not going to do that. I mean, that would be a complete distortion of the powers of the general government and very unconstitutional. We're not going to do that. But Calhoun was keenly aware that the central government would abuse its powers. This is something that I mean, people recognize, Calhoun recognized it. But he said, since we're not going to do this, and that's when he gave his very famous positive good speech, well then, here's what we need to think about slavery. But on the other hand, that admission that the Congress can do things that are unconstitutional was his way of saying that we really have no constraints on the federal government. The federal government can do whatever it wants. That's what I talked about yesterday. People are realizing this. The federal government can really, we just have, we have paper restraints on these things. We can do whatever we want. The Treasury can do whatever it wants. We have these norms, but the norms aren't really based on any kind of real restraint. The courts aren't going to do anything about this. We can do whatever we want, which is what Calhoun got into with history. There are restraints on things, but you have to be a student of history to, to believe in them. And you have to do it personally, because paper restraints mean nothing. And that's all you can ever do with a government, unless it's force, which um, that's a whole other issue. But paper restraints really mean nothing. So we can say the general government says it can only do this, or the people of the state said the general government can only do this, and the states can do everything but this. But that only matters if people believe that. If they don't believe that anymore, then the general government can do whatever it wants, and they can tell the states what to do, and the states don't have any powers. This is what people believe. This is why podcasts like mine are so important, because... You should believe the original Federal Republic. Hold them to the fire. Hold their feet to the fire. This is what was ratified. This is what they meant by these things. And this is what we're going to say you're going to do. This is what the people in America in the 19th century did. And it's why there were restraints on the federal government. So, have we taken the issue of slavery off the table? We're not even going to talk about that in the federal government. You know, it's not even an issue. We have a federal republic. What would Calhoun's federal republic look like? Well, you go again, you go back to Jefferson's federal republic. Number one, I think there would have been, as I said, a state negative on uh, federal law. If the federal government passed anything that was unconstitutional, states would be able to veto that. Now, it could just be for that state. It could be for the entire union. But there would have been some type of nullification procedure codified not just implied or not just recognized as original intent because you know, when you look at a tariff, for example, the, in the idea of a protective tariff, that's not in the Constitution. So if the state simply said that we're just not going to enforce an unconstitutional tariff on our, on our uh, borders and our, you know, our bays and harbors and our oceanfront, we're not going to do it, um, is that really something that's an innovation or something that's supposed to be there to begin with. In fact, over and over again, the ratification process, you had members of the founding generation say the states would be powerful enough to check anything the federal government does that's unconstitutional. So there would have been though, some type of state negative had Calhoun's vision of America existed. And you could say this is very Jeffersonian too. You have the Virginia-Kentucky Resolution. So there would have been something there like that. You would have seen an executive branch that was not chief legislator or commander-in-chief at times of peace. Calhoun was not interested in an American king. So you wouldn't have had executive government in America. You would have had uh, federal government in the Congress, and you would have had a general government, and you would have had powerful states that would have worked for the best interest of their own political constituents. 
So the executive branch would be extremely small. It wouldn't be this million-person bureaucracy that you see running around the United States now. Remember, Jefferson in the Declaration was critical of bureaucrats. And the line is beautiful. Sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. Sounds like locusts. It's a great visual image of all these swarms of officers. I mean, they're coming in like a horde to harass our people and eat out their substance. And they provide nothing but harassment. So if you want to look at what Calhoun's America would have looked like, you would have had less of that. Without question, at the federal level in particular. States, that's a whole other story. But at the federal level, the general government, you would have had less of that. So less bureaucracy would have certainly been on the table for John C. Calhoun. I don't think you can make any question about that. States would have also been recognized as states. Calhoun has a very famous statement he gives in a speech on the admission of Michigan into the Union. He says, I'm a conservative because I'm a conservative. I'm a states rights man. So the states would have been prime. The primacy of the states would not have been uh, questioned in the general government. You would have had states that acted like states. So they would be doing the things that the general government now thinks it handles, like, for example, education, which is really still a state issue, but they get a lot of cash from the federal government. And so they have to do all kinds of things, but they'll gladly do it because they get cash. And people will, oh my gosh, you see what the federal government gave us? It didn't really give you anything. It had to print that. And, I mean, that's that creates an issue. So, But you would have seen more state control of things like public health, which still, uh, education, uh, again, which is still uh, a state issue. Environmentalism, all this stuff. All of that would have been at the state level. All of these things we consider social welfare programs would have all been handled at the state level. So if your state didn't have the resources or the money and the states have to operate under balanced budgets, well, then you just wouldn't see these things. So I think what you would see in America with John C. Calhoun or a Calhounian America you would see the states be primary in all kinds of things that we now pass off to the general government. This is what I talked about yesterday, right? I mean, the dirty little secret in Washington is nobody writes, none of these congressmen write the bills. Um, they don't even know what's in the bills. This is why when Nancy Pelosi said, you got to pass a bill to read what's in the bill, because she knew what it was, because she was getting the lobbyists and other people who had written it to give it to her, but they're not giving it to anybody else. So nobody else knew what was in it. Because she didn't write it. Nobody wrote it. I don't even know if she knew it was in the bill, to be honest with you, when she made that statement. This is fascinating stuff. So you would have seen uh, an America that didn't have that. In fact, I said on, a, on, a, on Tuesday's show, I said, well, look, there is an example, a historical document that I think is very Calhounian. And of course, that would be the Confederate States Constitution. If you want to know what the what the general government would have looked like had we had a Calhounian imprint on America, just go look at the Confederate States Constitution. Powers of the central authority are extremely limited. There are earmarks, which means all appropriations have to be for specific purposes. Uh, you have a president that's pretty weak, six-year term, though it does have a line-item veto, which gives another check on the power of the central government. The states 
It's actually in the Confederate States Constitution. The 10th Amendment is, is encoded in the document. So you would have pretty powerful states. Um, it still allowed for still the supremacy clause. It still had the uh, still had a necessary and proper clause. I mean, it still had these things. That's because all the powers are expressly delegated. So you can have those things because you, you do need to say, well, in these areas where the United States government has complete control, they are supreme in that area. I mean, you know, the states can't do that. The states can't have... Uh, states can't come up with treaties, for example. So the general government is supreme in the treaties that it makes. The states can't counteract that. But where the states have powers, it's not concurrent. They are they are supreme in their area as well. So you would have seen a Calhounian America. Calhounian America would look very much like the Confederate States Constitution. I think there's no question about that. It's a very Jeffersonian, Calhounian document. Um, and again, I cover the Confederate States Constitution in my American Constitutions class. So use the coupon code JUNE. Get a great deal in these classes. The best price you're ever going to get on these classes now from today through the end of the month. You can use that coupon code JUNE and get those classes for quite a steal. But I hope this answered the question. I mean, Calhoun's America would have been much more limited. You'd have seen the states have a lot more powers. The central government would have been what it was designed. I don't think Washington, D.C. would look anything like it does today. Lobbyists would have a hard time because they have to lobby all 50 states. Um, you know, it would have been a much different world. Uh, you would have had, um, uh, you know, the states and all these social programs would have been carried through the states. One of the questions, if Calhoun as America had existed, would the United States have gotten involved in World War I or World War II? Would it have done either of those things? I don't know. Um, would it have been interested in the Cold War? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it could have been. But then again, it may not have been, which is another really interesting part of this debate and this inference that we would have had with John C. Calhoun and Calhoun's America winning the day. All right. So there's a lot more to go through this. And if you take reading John C. Calhoun, I cover Calhoun in quite some detail at McClanahan Academy. You should get that. Again, use the coupon code JUNE. Get a great deal for this month only, June 2023. I'll see you next week on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.